My friend Dave Wake and I, one occasion, were down at his his folks' beach house, and we um, we just got talking. We we could. He's the only person who has ever made me laugh so hard that I actually was physically sick whilst laughing, um, to his credit. But at the same time, we could also talk profoundly, like deep, deep, deep talks, um, on into the wee hours of the morning, like, you know, midnight. And he would get, admittedly, he'd get more and more silent as I was just warming up. And of course, he'd fall asleep totally on me. But on this occasion... We were having one of those deep, deep chats, and it was probably a little bit, little bit late at night. I still remember the, the room at his beach house. It kind of got two bunk beds and, you know, lights were off, and, and we were just sort of talking about people that we knew who's, you know, were messing up their lives and, and marriages and families that we knew and society at large. And, and to be quite honest, we were spiralling down. You know, it was just this, oh, man, the... You know, and it was kind of getting heavier and heavier and, and heavier. And, um, and I, I guess we were probably focusing a little bit too much on, you know, the, the damage that the evil one can do in a person's life and in the world rather than perhaps the redemptive power of God. And, and, um, and I guess we sort of concluded, man, you wouldn't really want to raise a family in this day and age, would you? Well, that was 37 years ago. 37 years ago, we were both 15 years of age, and, um, and we were kind of feeling a little bit, little bit dark about the, about the world. Um, God would grow us in our faith and speak to us about his grace and his power to redeem the, the worst that humanity has to, to um, offer up. But I guess it's very, it's very easy to, to lose hope in the midst of circumstances Around us, and I want to talk um, as we did this morning, and, and Josh alluded to. I want to talk tonight about a a pretty difficult topic, particularly um, you know it is it's a reality. Yep, um, in the world, it's a reality in the church, and there's probably hardly anyone here tonight that somehow isn't isn't touched by this topic. It's the topic of divorce, and um, we're going to. It's the next passage in Mark that we we um, are having a look at, and we're going to have a, a read now of chapter Mark chapter 10. We're going to read from verses 1 through to, to 12. And my prayer is that as we do so, that God would, would speak to each of us and encourage our hearts and, and show us something of his, his redemptive power. So turn with me in your Bibles or flick, if you're on your phone, to Mark chapter 10. And let's read um, verses 1 to 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Heavenly Father, we, we uh, just openly admit that in our society, this day and age, we are seeing a lot of license practiced when it comes to your intention for marriage. It can sometimes, as people reel off the statistics, actually feel all a little bit hopeless. But then we come to your word here and we see you reaffirming what it is that marriage is and can be. By your spirit now, would you come and minister to each and every one of us? Give us hope. Help us to understand the power of your grace, your redemptive power, and to gain new insight into all that you would like to say on this topic to each and every one of us tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for we ask it in your name. Amen. There's three laws here. The law of Moses, the law of creation, and the law of grace. And we're going to, to see those three laws at, at play here. But notice in verse 1, chapter 10, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea. Now, that's interesting because this is back into the jurisdiction of Herod. And the last godly prophet to speak out against divorce in that region, and in particular about Herod, was John the Baptist. It did not go well. In one sense, and yet he did speak forth the truth. Perhaps the Pharisees had that in mind when they set Jesus up for this kind of a test, this trick question. Perhaps they were actually thinking about this very thing. Huh, this could be a kind of a short, short, uh, a shorter ministry than, than perhaps what any of us thought. Because depending on his answer here, he actually could get himself in trouble with the authorities. Or maybe they were just sort of trying to bait him with a question that they knew would actually divide his popularity, divide and conquer, not a bad way to go. Because there was a raging debate around that time regarding how Deuteronomy 24 was to be understood, which is, which is the, the command of Moses, which Jesus will get to in a moment. And the debate went something like, like this. If, if your wife displeases you, you know, because of some despicable thing that she's done, then you can write her, you know, a letter of divorce. And in these days, in fact... They had taken such license with this, it didn't even go before any court, it didn't, didn't even go before a council, the husband could simply write out a certificate of divorce. You have displeased me. Now, the two schools of thought were, you know, displeased you for any reason, such as burning, burning dinner. One school of thought actually said, yeah, yeah, that's displeasure, that's, that's enough. If, if that's, you know, has caused you to kind of think, well, you're, you're out of here, then that that was one actual school of thought. And the other one was, no, 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 he's a little bit more stricter. No, it can't be that. It's actually got to be some sort of marital infidelity and so forth. And so there was this huge debate. Now, naturally, it was so common in that day that even amongst the crowd that was listening, this was a test question. In all reality, there was no correct answer that in the eyes of the Pharisees would actually help Jesus to keep his popularity. So what would the teacher do? How is he going to answer this one? How is he going to, to wriggle out of, 
out of this. And of course, Jesus being who he was, never wriggled. He's actually, he actually confronts it head on. And he says to them, he actually answers the question with a question. And he says, well, what did Moses command you? He, he asks them about the law of Moses. And they, they reply, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They didn't go into too much detail, but, but they basically just, just gave the, the short, short account of, of that. And so Jesus then says, and this is very interesting and perhaps very telling in the passage, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And then Jesus introduces a new law. He says, okay, that was the law of Moses. That was a concession that was made to accommodate your hard hearts. But now here's a new law. And he harks back to the law of creation, the created order. And I guess in, in this day and age, it's actually, it's actually a good actual method of reaffirming God's original intent. I guess we have seen more license when it comes to what is a marriage in this day and age than, a day, day and age than well, any preceding generation before us. Can a marriage be anything? A, a, a report of a man in a Las Vegas chapel who married his iPhone because he fell in love with it, I imagine. But he was able to actually get a little chapel there in Vegas, I guess, you know, and it didn't stay in Vegas, what happened in Vegas, but, but it kind of got out that this man married his iPhone. Can a marriage be anything? Can you marry whatever you like? Um, other reports are of people who have, who have married themselves because I just kind of thought there'd be less arguments, although I don't know that that's a guarantee either. Uh, but... But in a day and age where we seem to be very liberal with what, what actually a marriage is, perhaps the way that Jesus argues this passage is actually helpful for us. Okay, you're looking for a concession. But I'm going to go back to the original intent. You're looking at the law of Moses. I'm going to go back to a law that precedes that, a law that is superior to that, the law of creation. And so Jesus, Jesus says, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus adds this phrase, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus appeals to the original intent of God regarding marriage. This is a superior law. In stating this, Jesus is essentially saying breakdown in relationship is never God's intent. This is one of those moments where a little bit like Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes a commonly held belief about what is acceptable and then he raises the bar remarkably, almost raises it to the point in which people are just gobsmacked and like, who could possibly Reach that high. In the Sermon on the Mount, of course, you're familiar probably with such phrases as, you say it's wrong to murder, I say it's wrong to have a murderous thought. You say it's, it's wrong to commit adultery, I say it's wrong to actually lust after somebody. If you have actually thought it in your head, you may as well have acted it out. Instead of putting the bar low and saying, okay, well, let's just try not to murder people today, I'm actually saying, no, let's put the bar quite high. Let's have no murderous thoughts about people today. 
Jesus actually had this fascinating way of taking the commonly accepted standard and raising it so high that essentially it felt out of reach. In fact, in Matthew 6, he goes on to say, unless your righteousness actually exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Wow. It kind of blows the entire audience away. And he's doing a similar thing here as well. You know, is it okay? You know, what about the concession that Moses gave us? And Jesus is essentially saying, no, let me actually go back to the original intent, no concessions. The idea here is before the world is fallen to, and Jesus raises the bar, to be married to that one person for life. The teaching of the Christian church on the sanctity of marriage has been a blessing for thousands of years. In, in 2000, there's a, there's a magazine called Christianity Today. It's more online than it is actually a published version now. It's a, a sort of subscription that mostly probably church leaders would, would subscribe to. It's got some fantastic cartoons. Very funny. But... but um, in about 1992, now admittedly 25 years ago, it's, it's quite some time, time back, they did a survey of its many readers. They sent out at random, I believe, a, a, an email on, on the topic of sex, marriage and divorce. They sent it out to 1,500 recipients who were on their mailing list for, to subscribe to Christianity Today. About two-thirds responded. Now, admittedly, this is not, you know, it's, it's mainly in America and it's not necessarily representative of the Christian population. This is mainly church leaders. But they had a two-thirds response. About a thousand people replied and it was a fascinating insight into, into what Christian leaders or church leaders thought about marriage and so forth. Interestingly, way above the national average, 90% said that they were actually very satisfied in their relationship. 83% were still in their first relationship. This was their first marriage. 28% admitted that at some point or another, their marriage had hit rocky ground and they had considered divorce. 28% had considered divorce. But here's the interesting thing. Of that 28%, 9 out of 10 of them said that their belief in the Christian teaching regarding the sanctity of marriage, that had helped keep them together and save the marriage. Nine out of ten, that's a whopping number, nine out of ten of that 28% said it was the fundamental belief of Christian teaching on the sanctity of marriage, what God has joined together, do not separate, that helped them ride it through and keep them together. Isn't that incredible? And so I feel this is kind of a, this is a great passage and a great reminder at a time like this where Jesus once again says, you're, you're wondering if that standard is okay, and I am lifting that to here. And I am saying, oh, no, this is God's ideal. This is, this is the law of creation. This is what God, God desires. And that teaching has helped many a marriage get through some of those those tough times. And then Jesus adds this, as we said, let no one um, 
Let no one separate what God has joined together. That's a line, actually, probably many of you have heard if you've been to a wedding and so forth, right after about the pronouncement, I pronounce you men and wife, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You probably heard that. One of my favorite lines. You probably heard that before. This is Jesus' insertion at this particular point, and he's essentially saying this, regardless of who arranges the marriage, whether it's a, an arranged marriage by parents or whether it's arranged by the couple, doesn't matter who arranges it. It's God who joins it together. And when God joins something together, be very careful about messing with that. It's a reminder, essentially, of our responsibility. You know, do not break what God has put together. It's a reminder in this regard of our responsibility. In some respects, you might say, actually, oh, the Bible has a little bit to say on divorce. There aren't that many passages. Oh, but I tell you what, it's got a whole lot to say on marriage. The bulk of Scripture is aimed at helping to address Christian, Christian living and Christian relationships. And yes, as it pertains to getting along with one another, but also as it pertains to marriage and family and, and all those very, very practical matters. And God calls us to be very diligent about these things. It's a great encouragement to try to live out everything that we truly believe. I guess very early on, Bron and I, um, like many, many Christian couples, starting to, you know, starry-eyed and starting to think about, well, a serious lifelong commitment. And we asked ourselves just over 30 years ago, how are we going to make this work? And we... We met with lots and lots of couples to get as much advice as we could, and we read just about every book we could get our hands on. And, and I guess as we've, we've sort of talked to other couples about, you know, well, well, what makes for a good, healthy, strong marriage, we've, we've often said intentionality, just intentionality, not falling into it. One of the things that we just committed our, ourselves to do very, very early on was to practice the fruit of the Spirit in our marriage first. It really didn't matter how lovely we were, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind and good. and gen- It didn't matter a hill of beans what that looked like with this person over here. Oh, this person over here in the workplace down the street. If we weren't doing it in our marriage first, if it wasn't real there, then it wasn't real anywhere. It had to be true for us in our marriage relationship. You might say, well, you, you kind of had it easy there, Stuart. I mean, look at Bronwyn, you know. Yeah, but imagine how difficult it was for her, huh? You know, We made this covenant to practice the fruit of the Spirit in our relationship. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter how perfect the personality is and how rich the chemistry, practicing the fruit of the Spirit is just that. It's not natural. It's the fruit the spirit. It's not the fruit of our nature. Human nature is not that different from one marriage to another. Practicing the fruit of the spirit takes the power of the spirit. And it was a commitment under God that we would trust him to make that real in our marriage. God's plan, you could say, for marriage is simply this, a spiritual union in which a man and a woman filled with God's spirit then fill their marriage with the fruit of the spirit. 
a union, a spiritual union in which a man and a woman who are filled with God's Spirit then fill their marriage with the fruit of the Spirit. It makes it a, makes it a beautiful place to be. And that means intentionally saying, yes, I will exercise, I will practice you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control and, and perseverance. I will, I will practice those things day in and day out. For better, for worse, sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. Um, the law of creation is a reminder. That's God's ideal. The bar has been set high. Aim high. Go for it. But then the disciples take Jesus aside, like they often do, actually. I reckon following Jesus was a little bit like this. It wasn't the usual teaching methods that we, that we might learn in, in terms of you know, how we might go about discipling somebody. For Jesus, it was following him and shock. You know, some statement, a miracle, all the, why would you say that, Jesus? And then as the disciples get away, is, did you really mean that? Do you realize how offensive that was? Or, or that was amazing. Do you realize how miraculous that was? I mean, following Jesus was shock. Then coming away and, and what just happened there? And, and then some reflection on that and then often action. Hey, this is the way it is in the kingdom. Explanation of a parable that just absolutely stunned people and, then, and so forth. Well, once again, that happens. They all meet together and the disciples, when they're in the house again, verse 10, they ask Jesus about this. Remember, we had the law of Moses, the law of creation, and now here's the law of grace. Now, it might not be immediately evident, but let's read what Jesus says. So he's got the disciples alone, and you might think that here is... Is where, you know, kind of, kind of Jesus says, oh, you know, it's not that bad. No, no, actually, here's the law of grace. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Well, how, how is that grace? How is that a gracious thing to say? You see, in answering this question, Jesus encourages perseverance by discouraging the abuse. Do you remember who it was he was talking to? He was talking to Pharisees who were virtually handing out certificates of divorce, who were basically had taken this license from the law of Moses to the absolute extreme, and they were absolutely abusing the sanctity of marriage. Remember, that's who Jesus was, was talking to. And as he takes the disciples aside, he again encourages perseverance in this matter by discouraging the abuses that the Pharisees were obviously practicing and wanting Jesus to affirm. Thanks to Matthew, who is recording the same passage but includes just a few little insights there, in chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples' response at this point is, huh, well, if that's the case, it's better not to get married, right? Right? Now, that's a very telling comment. A very telling comment. Jesus just makes this, this statement, and the disciples say, well, it's probably just better not to get married. Now, why would they say that? In other words, they're saying, hey, if there is if there's no out, seriously, Jesus, if there is no out in this, if there isn't a license to get out of these vows, then isn't it better to just not marry? Because, because frankly, this is impossible. 
This is like a, a, a ball and chain around my foot for the rest of my life. Like, like, I just, why would anyone get married if there isn't an out? But here is where Jesus, again, is, is raising the bar in the value of marriage. This is not new thinking to the disciples. They're absolutely baffled by what Jesus' take on things. Later on in, in chapter 19 of Matthew, in verse 26, they encounter a rich man who is finding it too difficult to comply with what Jesus, Jesus is asking of him. I think the disciples kind of felt like this would be a good guy. I mean, he's rich. We must have God's blessing upon him. This would be a good guy to kind of have on our side, Jesus. And he walks away sadly. The disciples are absolutely baffled. And Jesus says to them, it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's doing their head in. But, 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 but wealth is, is evidence of God's blessing. He's wealthy. He's blessed by God. Why did you send him away like that? Why, why is it difficult for him to get into the kingdom of heaven? Surely he's, the pleasure of God is already upon him. And the disciples are concluding once more, if that's the case, this is just doing our heads and I guess it's impossible. Who can get in to the kingdom of God? And Jesus simply says, well, you see, what's impossible for man is possible for God. And you could translate that, that phrase of Jesus, what's impossible for man is possible for God. You could translate that actually over everything that Jesus commands you. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. What's impossible for man is possible for God. I want you to, to go back to the law of creation and practice that in your marriage. What is impossible for man is possible for God. You see, Jesus always is addressing the heart. A marriage is built on a foundation of two people who believe that God's grace is sufficient for them. And a divorce is the result of one or both parties believing that it's not. Let me say that again. Marriage is built on the foundation of two people who believe that God's grace is sufficient for them. And a divorce is the result of one or both parties no longer believing that's the case. God's grace isn't sufficient. I can't change. You can't change. We can't change. Losing that hope, losing that belief in God's redemptive power, losing that belief that what's impossible for man is possible for God, losing that fundamental conviction that the grace of God can sustain. It can do what a, what a person cannot do, what you can't do, what I can't do, what together we can't do. And when we lose that hope, relationship breaks down. But it does need two hearts to believe that, that the grace of God is sufficient. Do you remember in John 8, um, uh, some folk find a woman in adultery, drag, drag her before Jesus and, and say, we found sin in the bedroom. In my paraphrase, Jesus says, yeah, and I've found sin in the heart. Nobody picks up a stone. Nobody stones it. They all walk away. It's a matter of the heart. And what happens when, when one heart has lost their way? Because it does take two hearts believing in the conviction with conviction that God's grace is sufficient. What happens when one heart has lost the way? What happens when... When there is unfaithfulness in the marriage, what happens when it's a non-believer and he wants out? 
actually, both Jesus and Paul answer that question. In Matthew 19, 7, Jesus or Matthew adds the words of Jesus on this occasion. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and, and vice versa, except where there has been marital unfaithfulness. And so it seems that, that Jesus is very conscious, actually, of when two hearts are not able to make the same commitment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul also addresses the issue, what happens when you've married an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants out? These are the only two real situations this kind of scripture, scripture covers. But in these two situations, the exception, the allowance to remarry after, after a divorce, protects the sanctity of marriage by making an allowance for travesties against it. But the context here, which we must not lose sight of, is again the heart. In the passage just before it, remember we looked at it last week, Jesus has said, be seasoned with salt. In other words, what's going on inside of you? Have you got a good heart? And in the passage just after this, which is kind of a little, we'll look at next week, spoiler alert, but, but essentially there, you have to come. If you come into the kingdom of God, you have to come as you would as, as a little child with a very simple, very pure heart. And in this particular passage, the thing that Jesus points out is you are hard of heart. It comes back to the heart. Hearts that are soft towards God and believe in the grace of God have a wonderful, wonderful chance of being able to reach that ideal, the high bar, the bar set very high of God's, God's law of creation. But hearts which are hardened towards him, which have allowed sin to creep in, have lost sight of the sufficiency of God's grace, those sort of hearts will find it difficult to fulfill God's ideal. The law is a little bit like a speed sign that says 60. And grace is a little bit like a cruise control that helps you maintain that. Jesus is appealing to the possibility of grace, sufficient grace to be able to hold you to the course, hold you to the course that you are going, that, that has been set out. Let me actually read to you a little bit of a summary. I just to kind of try and give you just the overview here. Just so I'm not misunderstood, it's helpful. As truth and grace cannot be rightly separated, it is an act of grace by God that firstly reinforces in the strongest terms possible the ideal of marriage, and then secondly, that all divorce falls short of that ideal. Simply put, the Bible teaches that divorce is wrong. The bulk of Christian teaching is directed towards healthy Christian living and relationships in the hope that marital disharmony can be resolved without divorce. The key passages on divorce could be summarized this way. Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19, no divorce. 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19 also, if divorce happens, no remarriage. And then Matthew 5, 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, exceptions to remarrying are marital unfaithfulness to your spouse or an unbelieving spouse who requests it. 
The exceptions show once more that the power of grace is greater than the destructive nature of sin and its consequences. Gerald Hawthorne put it this way. He's a Bible commentator, quite well known. He says, The exceptions reinforce the sanctity of marriage by dissolving the travesties against it. In the New Testament teaching, we see that Jesus was answering a specific question and Paul was addressing a specific problem. The application of grace to situations that are not ideal remind us that divorce is not the unforgivable, unforgivable sin. That's a Tom Kimber quote. Gave me permission to, to use that. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And God is not blind to the reality of marital travesties such as cruelty, abuse, desertion, and the like. As always, grace is not a license for sin. To the extent that we are able, we should work towards reconciliation. And to the extent that we are not, we should trust God to do the impossible. Because there will be, even within our family, Christian family, there will be some who are being divorced, I would, I'll just say a, a word on their behalf. Let me just advocate for them for a moment. There are some in our church who have been through a divorce. You, there may come a time where you hear about that. It takes zero effort, it's just human nature, to assume the worst. But it takes genuine love and God's nature to assume the best. And I would encourage you to do that. She has a good rule for life. Why was Jesus so adamant about this? Why did he raise the bar so high? Well, one, of course, he knew that there would be sufficient grace to help us achieve it. But two, the union between a man and a woman actually reflects the unity of the Trinity and indeed the union of the Trinity with the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that, that a human marriage is, is actually modelled of Christ and the church. That's our model. This is God, as it were, marrying the people of God. That's the model that we should be aiming for. And every, every human marriage is a reflection of that. And that's why it is so important as well. Because can be hard work, but when we get it right, look what we are showing the whole world. We're showing the reality of God in relationship with humanity. It's a beautiful thing. I had a young man in my office one occasion for pre-marriage counselling, and he was there by himself on this occasion. I can't remember why, what circumstances led to that. But he shared with me, That one thing that was just kind of really tripping him up was that he was from three generations of divorce. And he said, that's, that's my heritage. Like, I got to say, it's, it's not a great start. And I thought for a moment, and then I, and then I said to him, uh-huh. And I said, but you know Christ, Jesus, don't you? Yeah. And you know that you're being grafted now into his family, don't you? 
Yeah. And the relationship that you have with him goes for eternity, yes? Maha. So spirit is a far greater reality than blood. Do you agree? Yes. I mean, if it's going to go for eternity, it definitely is, isn't it? Yes. So the spirit tie is greater than the blood tie? Absolutely. Then I said, your heritage is not three generations of divorce. Your heritage is actually first generation of the most wonderful and successful marriage ever promised between Christ and his church. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of Mary, many, your older brother, in a sense, in God's family, he has demonstrated and continues to model through his faithfulness to the church, who he will never, ever, ever let go of. He's modeled to you how this works. But then look around you. You belong to the family of God. You've been grafted in, and they are much more your family than your family. And within the church that you are a part, there are a myriad of couples and relationships demonstrating the power of God and the power of grace to hold this thing together. You're surrounded by so many people who can witness and testify to the power of God to do the impossible. You could look around you and just add up how many decades of marriage you're surrounded by, which all hold out the hope that Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. That's your heritage, and it's a magnificent heritage. It was a great joy to see a smile creep across his face as he realized that's not just talk, that's reality. That is my new reality. I believe it. I believe it. And it was great to see hope come. So I guess application-wise for each of us, I would say if you're young and you're, you attempted to have those little moments like my good friend Dave and I had when we were just 15 years of age, I would say to you there's hope. There's wonderful hope in Jesus Christ. And I would say to you if you're, if you're married and whether you're celebrating the 10th or the 20th or the 30th or whatever anniversary it is you're celebrating, I would say praise God, congratulations, keep striving on, both because you are bringing glory to God, you're blessing one another, but you are a living testimony to the rest of God's family of the goodness of God and the hope that no matter how difficult it gets, there is no trial that frankly is brand new to you that nobody else has experienced but the grace of Christ is sufficient. And when we trip up and when we get it wrong, what then? It's this thing about grace. There's more grace. There is always grace. Because our capacity to foul up just does not compete with God's capacity to redeem. Just doesn't. He wins every time. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, thank you for this passage. And, and, and it is a kind of a tough one in some respects when we contrast it with some of the prevailing attitudes of today. 
but our hearts are warmed and there's a sense in which I think we find ourselves resonating with you and saying, oh, yes and amen, spirit within us. Just thanking you so much for this teaching, for raising that bar high, but also for pointing towards the hope that we can attain what it is that you have asked because of grace, empowering grace. It's a beautiful thing and we thank you for it. I pray for all of the marriages in our church. I, I pray that they would continue to persevere, continue to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, continue to give testimony to the power of God to do the impossible. We want to pray for one another in our marriages and, and not take it for granted that such and such is doing okay and such and such is doing okay, but continue to, continue to lift one another up and commend each other to the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that we all face the same battles. Lord, we would, oh boy, we would never be so proud as to just sit back in a complacent sort of a fashion and think we've got it made. We readily express our desperate dependence upon you. We need you every day, every hour, every moment. Would you please do the miraculous amongst us? so that we as your people would defy the statistics of the day and be a demonstration of the reality of your saving power and ability to sustain. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.